So my talk is on Aristotle's dynamics in physics 7.5. And my goal here is to contextualize uh, Aristotle's dynamics in its proper, in what I think is its proper settings. Now, Aristotle's theory of forced motion, as it's commonly called, is central to all sorts of things. The argument that the universe is moved by an unmoved mover, the universe is finite, and so forth. I'm not going to go through the list, and probably in a few more things I've left out. But what I want to concentrate on is just the chapter itself. Now, in your handout, I have two sets of, uh, there are two handouts. Uh, anyway, the one handout is the text I'll be referring to. The other is a summary of the basic laws in various textual forms, and I'll be explaining that in a minute. So, Aristotle's dynamics is also the earliest extant mathematical account of power and motion in Greek science, and as such influenced later accounts. But, of course, this needs some argument that it is a mathematical text, and uh, or rather, I would say, a clarification. So, my main point is going to be that Aristotle's dynamics is based on an earlier mathematical treatise on power and motion, a very abstract treatise that did not, probably did not go into details about how to analyze power or and probably treated motion as locomotion. In this regard, it's important to note that, but I'm not going to discuss it, is that the original treatise might not have distinguished forced and natural motion at all, but just spoke about power and motion. Uh, again, I'm not going to discuss it, but the distinction for bodily motion between natural and unnatural motion only occurs once in Physics 7 in the account of throwing in chapter 2. So if it were a central issue, you would expect it to get bigger press in the book. I have very various reasons for thinking that uh, it shouldn't get press, but uh, you would expect it to get something uh, deeper if it were there. Natural motion being the motion of elements towards their home, and uh, a natural motion being forced motion away from their home. Fire down Earth up. So, there have traditionally been three approaches to the text. One approach is to treat them as universal dynamical laws. I'll call that the nomological account. And it's best represented by the fellow sitting to my uh, left over here who wrote a wonderful paper that I'm going to be bouncing off of from time to time. But it goes back to the uh, 1920s in uh, an article by uh, Drabkin. This view takes the laws as basically models of uh, a general uh, physical laws that uh, basically unify all sorts of motions and forced motions under the theory of dynamics. Now, in opposition to this, not too long uh, uh, in, in the same period as, as Drachen, the uh, is the view of Cotteron, uh, who argued that the laws, the principles that Aristotle presents are too vague, too incoherent uh, to constitute a theory, uh, and that rather we should understand them as, as only for in, intended for extreme cases and aimed at establishing physical and metaphysical properties, and that they're based basically on common beliefs. I'll call this the anti-mathematical view. 
In between was what we could call the endoxic view uh, that Gwilowin presented, that these were mathematical generalizations of ordinary hauling. So they're mathematical, but they're based on endoxo or common beliefs, good common beliefs, for example, about how many people it takes to haul a ship. I'm going to try to introduce a fourth approach that I'll call these general dynamical procedures within the constraints of proportion manipulation. In other words, I'm going to argue that these uh, principles are to be really understood not in as general laws in the sense, in a modern sense, but rather as procedures for calculating, for determining uh, what sorts of things occur given certain prior conditions. And that they're procedural rather than, let's say, algebraic. Before proceeding, I'd just like to make a small note about the text of 7.5. Most people here probably don't worry about manuscript traditions, but the manuscript tradition is fairly clean for the text. Unfortunately, when we throw in the two principal ancient commentators, Alexander of about 300 CE and Simplicius of the 6th century, and some good sense, the text actually becomes extremely messy, much messier than most writers on them would have you believe. And to see this, you can just look at the two handouts to see all the sorts of variations that you get when you throw in Alexander and Simplicius. But I'm going to be looking at uh, uh, five and six, and I give you three variations. And th those three variations are somewhat telescoped because I could probably throw in a few more uh, with a little <coughs> imagination for uh, how to interpret two of the laws that I'm going to be focusing on at the end of my talk. So it's common practice to go through the, the, the cases, and uh, so I'm basically going to be reviewing the, uh, the different procedures. Now, as I understand these laws, it's extremely important to understand them as conditionals. You set up a prior case, and then you determine, and then you cite what sorts of variations you can have on the prior cases. So, for example, if we look at case one, we start with the hypothesis that a body, uh, a force, sorry, a force or a power, alpha or A, moves a uh, weight, B, over a distance, gamma, in some time, delta. And then, once you have that established, you're given variations. Now, these are per permissible variations. They're not necessary variations. This can happen or that can happen. So the types of laws that we have uh, establish restrictions on possibilities, what sorts of things you can do with uh, uh, a weight and a force, given that the, given that the hypothesis. So the first instance is uh, that you can have the weight, and if you have the weight, one of the things that you could do is have double the distance. Or alternatively, you could have the time. And you're then allowed to say, well, uh, generalize this. You don't just have to have the, the, the weight. So long as the moved is to, uh, the first, the initial moved is to the variant moved as the, uh, time, let's say, is to the time, uh, you're okay. And then there's a restriction. There's going to be a restriction that the moved can't be smaller than its variant in the second, in the consequent. I'll be worrying about that later, but this is sort of the standard way of thinking about it. But I'm going to be emphasizing the conditional structure of this. A second point I want to make is not crucial to my talk, but it's important 
conceptually for understanding how these procedures are to be understood. Uh, the issue is not about speed, even though we're talking about distance and time. Uh, speed is not a concept that's going here. What's going in the, in the text is distance in a certain time. And that's not to be confused, I think, with a, with a much later notion of speed, which does creep into uh, Greek mathematics in various places, but not here. And so, too, you don't have to worry about it being constant speed. The only issue here really is what happens when uh, you have the, uh, the first situation, and then that leads to the consequent. So, for example, if it goes twice the distance, it doesn't matter, for example, to suppose a worship hauling, whether the workers sit down for five minutes and then run for the next uh, five minutes. The only important thing is that the distance be twice and uh, the, uh, for the weight being half. So what goes on in between over here uh, as it's traveling is unimportant. And that actually will turn out to be fairly important in uh, the way in which you would extend these principles. But I would say that it's typical of the arguments of the physics that constant motion is rarely an issue that uh, the motion be at the same speed is rarely an issue. Usually the issue is just that there be some distance travel and some time and then you divide it up. It does occur, come to be an issue in some of the arguments at the end of book six. And Aristotle is actually aware of that. So let me get to then case three and four. So again, we have the same uh, antecedent, uh, A moves, uh, power A moves B over a distance gamma in time delta, and then you have the variations allowed that now you can have the distance and have the time, or you can have the power and have the, uh, the weight moved. And here again, there's a proportionality principle, although exactly what it is is not perfectly uh, clear. And then the seventh, the uh, fifth in the number of variations, but the seventh in, in the list that Aristotle presents, is where you have two base cases. The power A1 moves body, uh, moves weight B1 uh, over a distance gamma and a time delta, and uh, a second body, A2 power, sorry, A2 ma uh, moves uh, B2 uh, weight B2 over a distance gamma in the time, and that allows you to have a principle of composition, and this principle of composition would be very important for extending the theory, uh, namely that uh, the combination of A1 and A2 can then move the weight B1 and B2 uh, over the same distance in the same time, and here it's unclear whether they, whether the mover has to to the mover has to be as the move to the moved or whether they don't need to be proportional. Uh, in my diagram, I left them uh, not in proportion uh, on the supposition that probably it's not the case, but I don't know. Uh, finally, there is the case of failure. Uh, there are two cases of failure. I'm just going to present one of them now, and I'll be discussing the other one in detail later on. So what can happen, though, is uh, let's suppose you have half the power moving half the weight in a distance gamma over a time delta, and then it doesn't follow that you can move that the same power 
uh, can move twice the weight in, let's say, half the distance over the same time. And the reason why is because it just might not have enough oomph to get the thing moving at all. And so if you increase the, uh, the, the weight of the thing moved, you just not, might not be able to move it. Aristotle's example is uh, someone trying to haul a ship. 20 men might haul a ship over a certain distance in a, over in a certain time, but one man might not be able to move it at all. And this is, we could call the threshold problem. Um, and so too, uh, case six is where instead of increasing the move, you decrease the power. Again, there's no guarantee if you decrease the power that you'll be able to move the object. So let me turn to the three basic points I'm going to be arguing for to argue for my general point. The first is that our chapter is mathematical. Because it is ensconced in a mathematical tradition that we are very familiar with from Babylon, Egypt, and Greco-Roman Egypt. It is a feature of this tradition to present procedures and not proofs, and to present those procedures by way of actual numbers. To see the procedural rules as laws given in abstract equations, I think, is to misconstrue them but not as severely as failing to see them as fundamentally mathematical. So my basic point is, if you construe them as equations, you aren't doing as bad a job as you would be doing if you're uh, conceiving them as fundamentally mathematical. If you misconstrue them as non-mathematical, you aren't doing as good a job. So I'm going to try to place the text in this tradition. Now, in this way, our tra chapter treats proportions in just the way that one would expect from basic contemporary Greek conceptions of quantities being translated into the procedure tradition. So in this way, this is just what you would expect. If you, saw, if you thought that a Greek mathematician was going to sit there with a Babylonian Egyptian conception of how to do mathematics, put them in proportions in this way. That's the basic idea. Now. There's a big footnote here. Uh, the modern anachronistic treatment of the proportions actually possibly begins with Alexander of Aphrodisius in the third century or beginning in the fourth, but is well underway in Simplicius in the sixth century, and it's common to most treatments of the mathematics, including that of Wardy, who was uh, in the uh, anti-mathematical camp, but even he does it in this anachronistic way. But it does find some tiny, tiny justification in Aristotle's wording. So we're going to have to be a little careful. Even here, there's another way I'm going to argue of reading Aristotle's poorly worded claims about proportion. And so we should be aware or, or avoid anachronisms. So second point, a crucial feature from which my talk gets its title is that the procedures are conditional. The procedures show how given one situation, one finds variations of the same situation. The conditionals provide a class of universal procedures that may be expanded via proportion theory. However, they are very different from thinking of them under a single formula. They also evade, evade unlike the contemporary text that we'll be looking at, uh, they also evade the need for metrical assignment. That is to say, you don't have to worry about talents, feet, units of power, or anything like that in expressing the, uh, the, the procedures. And that's, that's part of what you gain by thinking of them in terms of proportion theory. The third point has to do with an oddity of the text itself. 
Aristotle introduces two innovations to a previous theory. One is the failure of the laws to apply, as I said earlier, when the variant A2 is less than A with B fixed, or the um, original weight B, uh, the original weight B is less than the variant weight with A fixed, and presumably you could do proportional extensions where the failures will also occur. And the second is an application of the principles to alteration and growth. Well, I'm not certain of the latter, which has a lot of peculiarities in it, which are on the second page of the handout. Uh, I'm not going to go into the second page of the handout on that, but um, uh, the very peculiar language with which Aristotle presents the failure of the conditional is, I think, a smoking gun that Aristotle is rejecting or revising an aspect of an earlier theory. For the text hides a mathematical problem that has gone completely unnoticed, but which might not have been unnoticed in Arist by Aristotle's contemporaries. In other words, they might have, they would have seen the context much more clearly, indeed with perhaps a better text than the text that we have. Aristotle's modification of the original dynamics that may be compared with his revision of Eudoxian astronomy in the metaphysics. Aristotle takes the, the astronomical theories of Eudoxus and Callippus and then does a, a little modification to fit it into his schema of how a celestial um, system should look. And so it's a conscious tweaking of the system, and so too it's possible, I'm going to argue that it's probable that Aristotle was doing something very like that here. So I'll start with a few notes about the deductive structure of Physics 7. Physics 7 is an odd book in the physics. Uh, some people think it's a book that doesn't belong in the physics, but it has a clear deductive structure. On my reading, it consists of a series of theorems. To say that it consists of a bunch of theorems is partly just from the style of the texts. These theorems begin with a statement of the theorem, an argument, and then a statement of the conclusion, a statement, a restatement of the theorem. So structurally, they're written like theorems. The first theorem is that everything in motion is moved by something. That's then used to argue that there is a mover for every motion. But this argument is inadequate because Aristotle needs to assume for that argument that the proximate mover is always together with the thing moved. And so he argues for this by cases, locomotion, alteration, growth, and diminution, the, the three types of uh, motion that he's established in, uh, earlier in the, in, in the physics. But even this argument is inadequate because on the account of alteration, which is change of quality, the definition he's given earlier is too general. And so he needs to restrict the, the notion of alteration. To, and so he restricts it to everything altered is altered by something sensible. And he argues for this by elimination of cases. Now, when we turn to chapters four and five, chapter four provides criteria for comparing motions and change, for basically locomotion, alteration, and he also throws in generation, but it's not central to the text. This is an absolutely necessary step in his argument for presenting the procedures for calculating umft motion in chapter 5. Why? Because if you're going to talk about when, how you can vary these different motions, if you can talk about how you can vary 
let's say, the uh, distance traveled, you have to be able to compare the distance traveled in the firsts, in the antecedent, with the distance traveled in the consequent. If you don't have that, you don't have a theory at all. So that's the purpose of chapter four, is, is to build a fundamental precondition for establishing a way of talking about dynamic motion. So, a brief outline of the chapter, very brief, we're only going to be discussing the first part. The text begins with citations of earlier principles and theorems for the four components of efficiently caused motion, followed by the procedures, the four components being the power, the weight, the distance, and the time. <coughs> then follows an elaborate argument for when the fa principles fail to apply, with a destructive puzzle against Zeno. This is followed then by a clarificatory puzzle extending the theory to alteration and growth. Some people have not seen this as, an, as a, what I call a clarificatory puzzle, but see it just as a puzzle, e.g. Wardy, but I think this is just uh, a misreading of the text. It is important to note that Aristotle produces no argument for the basic dynamic principles. We can imagine such arguments, and indeed it is the meat and potatoes of modern discussions of Aristotle's dynamics that they do so. But these arguments are not Aristotle's arguments. Even the use of uh, the hauling example is a misuse. Aristotle uses it to illustrate a point about when uh, motions, when the principles fail. It's not an argument for the principles. It is an illustration. To assume otherwise is to assume that Aristotle is not in control of his examples. So, Babylonian background, and here I'm sorry, Ed. <laughs> We've discussed this already. Okay. So here's a 19th century um, style uh, of presenting the dynamics. <laughs> the power of the agent times the time of the change equals a constant times the amount of changing thing times the amount of change. Okay. Here's Mendel's 19th century BCE uh, uh, anachronism. Different direction. Okay, no one wants to see sexagesimal numbers, so I'll put it up this way. This is a problem from Sipor. Uh, it's a typical problem for the 19th century BCE. Uh, you have a problem uh, to find out the volume of a section of a wall and then to find out how many, much a single worker is to be assigned to construct of the wall. The first step is to find a standard volume. Uh, the volume is going to be determined by the, the standard volume is going to be determined, the vol standard section, sorry, is determined by the length of the wall, which is one rod. So what he actually does is he finds the area of the cross section but this is given as determining the actual volume of the wall. So he takes, it's a trapezoid, so he takes the base, the top, the base, he adds them, he divides it by two, and then he multiplies it by the height to get uh, four and a half over there. And that's multiplied, as I said, by one rod, which is the standard volume. The, these other are cubits, actually, half, about a half a meter. So that's the volume. And then you take the standard work rate. The standard work rate is one-sixth. And then you take the reciprocal of one-sixth, you'll see six. And you multiply four and a half by six, and then you see 27. And that gives you the number of workers you're supposed to hire for your standard work rate. 
You then solve the reciprocal of 27, the laborers, and you'll see 127. By 127, by one cable, which is the length of the wall, which is 60 rods, you will see two and two ninths. One man takes it, that's the procedure. So basically, this is a very, this is a typical tax. The, the BM 85194 is full of these sorts of things. So let's look at the anachronisms involved here, or sort of anachronisms, differences. The first is genuinely an anachronism. Work rates, they don't occur after the old Babylonian period. You only find them up to this about 18th century, and then uh, they just don't occur later on. So that's an anachronism. That is the anachronism in my text. Another thing that you find in the text, which is typical of Babylonian texts of any period, is the free multiplication of values. So we saw we, we had a work rate, and we multiplied the reciprocal of the work rate times the volume of the standard section of, of, this, of the volume of the section of the wall that was of standard length. But there are similarities too. It is a procedure text. It tells you to calculate something given something else. And there are actual numbers. Well, in our text, the actual numbers are half and two. That's not, <laughs> so it's sort of actual numbers. It's not the complicated things you find in the Babylonian text. But keep in mind, the Babylonian texts are educational texts. They're teaching the student how to calculate these things. Uh, so in our text, there are fewer simple actual numbers, and there's no metrology in the Aristotelian text. There's no work rate, lengths, rods, cubits, or anything like that. So our text is much, much more abstract. But it's not abstract in the way in which you find typically, or you think of typically, let's say, in Greek geometry. You still have numbers and exa as examples. And finally, there are no proofs in either text. The, view, the, the principles are just presented. So let's now turn to issues of anachronism. Here's Euclid's definition of ratio. The definition of ratio isn't really three, it's actually four. Uh, three is the build-up to four. This is from Euclid, uh, book five. A ratio is a sort of condition of two magnitudes of the same kind according to their size. This thing doesn't have any meaning, or at least I don't think it has any meaning, until you put in four magnitudes which are able, which are able by being multiplied to exceed one another, are said to have a ratio to one another. That's what gives meaning to three. So the crucial thing is things, is that magnitudes can be in a ratio because they can be multiplied so as to exceed one another. If they can't be, then the notion of ratio doesn't apply. Now, I, I believe that Aristotle accepts some principle like this because he often says you can't have a ratio between a finite magnitude and an infinite magnitude. There's no ratio there. So I assume that there's something like this that Aristotle must be accepting. So let's look at the first anachronism. Uh, so if you look at 4P on page 1, you'll see that in fact, they will be, you'll see the line, in fact, the, um, the proportions will be similar and the strength proportional to the weight. So this looks like Aristotle is taking ratios of strength to weight. So anyway, uh, it looks here like Aristotle in the text is talking about a ratio of a strength to a weight, which would violate 
what I've just stated on the assumption that you can't multiply a weight so as to ex exceed a strength. And indeed, this is the reading of Simplicius. As the strength A is to weight B, so is half to half, and many modern presentations subsequent to Simplicius. On page 3, no, sorry, page 4, I quote extensively, however, from a text of uh, the Mechanica, which is a contemporary text to Aristotle. And I'm not going to go through it in detail, but you'll see the phrase, the unnatural to the natural motion happens to be pairwise proportional. That's in boldface in the middle. And if you read through the text, you'll see that what he means there, page three, page three, sorry. If you look at page three, you'll see that this reading is actually, it's not, wouldn't be correct to say that the text is speaking of the ratio of the unnatural motion to the natural motion, although that's perfectly possible. Uh, although under one reading, uh, a recent reading of the text by Joyce Van Leuven, and I should advertise, she does good work, uh, she's argued that the unnatural motion is a linear motion and the natural motion is the curvilinear motion, in which case you, would, you could not, if you were an Aristotelian, have a ratio between them. But in any case, it doesn't matter because you can see above, also in boldface, that what Aristotle, or pseudo-Aristotle, whoever wrote this text, uh, meant was that as the natural is to the natural, so the unnatural is to the unnatural. So I don't have to read this text as stating that uh, you have an unnatural motion, uh, sorry, that you have a weight, a strength to a weight as a ratio. This text can be read as expanding out what he means is the strength is to the strength as the weight is to the weight. That's just dealing with one issue. So there need be no anachronism in Aristotle. Uh, it'd be funny to call it anachronism in Aristotle. Uh, or just an oddity in Aristotle. But there are other oddities. So just as truth in advertising, I'm not going to discuss it on page two, though. You have a text that is um, quite... Uh, peculiar uh, from Aristotle's book on the soul. I'm not going to go through it, but it looks like here that Aristotle is allowing you to take a ratio of sweet to white or bright, however you want to translate the word. So I'm not going to argue this, but I'll, I will just as truth in advertising say that there are problems with my thesis <laughs> if someone wants to go to it later. But let's look at the real anachronisms. The first one is in a recent edition of uh, Scolia, uh, little marginal notes in manuscripts, which uh, Marwin Rashid is attributed to Alexander of Aphrodisius, my third century uh, commentator. For example, if someone lifts a weight of 10 talents and carries it in two hours over six stades, they would carry it stayed as a, a, I don't know, what's the state, about a tenth of a mile? Something like that. It varies anyway, depending on what city you're in. Uh, for example, if someone lifts a weight of 10 talents and carries it in two hours over six states, they would carry five talents in two hours over 12 states and six states in one hour. The demonstrations of it are linear according to alternate ratio, and the parts for equal multiples have the same ratio. Uh, I think that what linear means in this text is geometrical metrical style, that is to say something of the sort we're talking about where you throw in numbers, but uh, this would require a, a separate argument. Uh, the, the phrase 
that I've translated as linear doesn't occur very often in, in discussions of, of Greek mathematics. But anyway, it looks like uh, Alexander is saying something like, if you have 10 talents to 5 talents, and is as 2 hours to 1 hour, then you get 10 talents to 2 hours as 5 talents to 1 hour or something like that. So it looks like he's Alexander is doing what I'm calling the bad move with ratios. But whether or not Alexander does it, it's certainly the case that Simplicius does it in the 6th century. And I've given you uh, a whole bunch of texts up there where Simplicius does this. It's extremely common, and it's, it's very weird. But anyway, uh, we have in the text I've quoted, as the whole weight is to half, so is the whole time to half, and alternando, uh, by, uh, as ten talents are to an hour, so are five talents to half an hour. So this is an anachronism, and then we can go, uh, again, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's a really good paper. <laughs> the power of the agent times the time of change equals some constant times the amount of changing thing and the amount of times the amount of change. But the constant varies with different types of changes, and there is a threshold. So we could try to fix up the anachronism of this a little bit by trying to at least take into account the conditional. In other words, the question might be, where does that constant come from? So let's suppose you try to, to find a place for the constant. So you might say, okay, let's let the power of the agent, the initial agent be A, the power of the move be B, and uh, we'll now put it in a conditional form. If power A moves changing thing B over gamma and time delta, and the, uh, the power A is to the power of agent A2 is greater than uh, the weight B to the amount of changing thing B2, that is say you aren't reducing the, the amount of, of oomph that's relative to the amount of weight being moved, then you have a law, power of agent A2 times the time of change B2 is equal to some constant times the amount of changing thing B2 times the amount of change of B2, where the constant then could be then determined by just taking A's moving, uh, uh, sorry, that should be A's moving B, not B2, uh, is equal to A times delta over uh, uh, B times gamma. And then, you know, you now have a constant. And uh, you could do this for every sort of change. And this would at least get you a particularization and a contextualization of it, so you don't have to worry about the constant of change. But nonetheless, there are difficulties here. First, the weights can't be in ratios with times. You can't multiply the weights times the distance. But here's what I think is much, much more important. The constant plays no role in the treatment of Aristotle's ratios. Instead, we have compared pairs of values. The constant disappears when you express the laws with the very quantities in ratios. So let me give you an analogy here. Suppose you want to find the area of a circle. The obvious thing to do is to take the diameter, square the diameter, multiply it by 3, and divide it by 4. That's a Babylonian-type procedure. Uh, or as we would do it, take one-fourth of pi d squared. That would cause you to focus on, as people do, including Archimedes and uh, Egyptians and everyone else, to focus on the value of pi over 4 or focus on the value of pi. But if instead you're thinking of this as 
it appears in Euclid, you're going to think of it in a very different way. Euclid's corresponding theorem is the ratio of one circle to another is as the square and the diameter of the one circle to the square and the diameter of the other. So there's no pi there, there's no notion of a constant, rather the, ratio, the constant disappears, or rather it was never there, because the conception of how to think about comparing areas is quite different. Secondly, the constant presupposes a metrology for every term, talents, hours, states, haulers, and so forth. You might not have such a metrology. And in an abstract account, you might not want such a metrology. So the use of, and next, the use of ratios makes varying more than two ratios and types of magnitudes technically difficult. Now, this is a technical issue, but if you're thinking of it the way Aristotle presents it in terms of ratios, it's very hard to vary more than two at a time. It's technically difficult. So the tendency will be to vary two quantities find the variant, and then do another variation. So do it by stages. So mathematically, your conception is going to be that you have these basic principles, and now you want to find out a complicated system. You do a series of calculations that avoids having to think of three varied terms. You only have to worry about two at a time. So in a certain sense, there cannot be a universal law of the previous sort. But what's not wrong? This does not mean that a systematic treatment of pairs being varied do not constitute laws. However, and this is my claim, they're better conceived as procedures. So let me turn to the importance of being conditional. A crucial feature of the procedures from which my talk gets its title is that the procedures are conditional. This conditional feature has five ramifications. We only vary two parameters but can vary more by a composition principle through standard proportion theory. Secondly, the values of the unvaried parameters and the absolute values of parameters are completely unimportant. All you're doing is comparing parameters, and that gives the principles a kind of generality that they wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, the only important then parameters as well are those being varied. If we're not varying the power, we do not need to know how to vary it. So if you don't know how to compare two powers, you don't have to worry about it. You just don't change the power. You just change, and you certainly don't have to worry about units of power. But the unit, but the power can also be, if you, if you believe the laws, the power can be compared by the other effects. So you actually have an implicit way of comparing powers. Now this is the big point. So I make it big. <laughs> the procedures are general in two ways. If the antecedent holds, the consequent can be varied. The conditionals apply to all situations. So all you have to worry about is, do I have the antecedent? Then what do I do with the consequent? Secondly, if the antecedent holds, the consequent can be varied. The variations can be expanded through proportions. I've argued elsewhere in, in my work that uh, this is exactly what you find in Aristotle's definitions of faster and squaring. The definitions of faster uh, are Aristotle ascribes to unknown people, but he says this is how people define the faster, but uh, the example of squaring is easier to give. Aristotle defines squaring as finding the mean proportional between the length and width of a rectangle. 
So he defines squaring for the case of a rectangle alone. And then, of course, you can expand it, the definition, or rather you expand the usage by rectangling other figures. So if you can rectangle this figure, then you can square it. So the laws are restricted here, just as the definition of squaring is restricted to the case of rectangle, but it's also operational in the sense that we have generalizing procedures, even if we don't have general a general law. So in the case of faster, um, not every case of A being faster than B is covered, but at the same time, you just by applying some natural assumptions and proportion theory, you can ask whether one thing is faster than another for the cases that are not covered by the definitions. So you might say these are further theorems. So what's masked in the general law is the fact that, in fact, your treatise consists of base cases that are very restricted and presumably various expansions to deal with uh, unusual cases. And if you have a procedure, you might have that as a problem. How do I find the uh, how to expand it if I do this and I do that. The rules fail against increasing the move without proportionally increasing the mover and against decreasing the mover without proportionally decreasing the move. But notice also that if things work out and A does move to B or one half A does move B, then in fact the procedures have to apply. And you can show this by a simple reductio argument. I won't give the argument, but it's a very simple, trivial reductio argument. You can show that if this is the case, then the laws will apply. So in fact, you don't have to worry about the threshold case because it's covered by the fact that the laws, if the, if the thresholds don't obtain, then you get the standard things that you would expect. The last is an objection due to Wardy that uh, I think is just a a bizarre non-objection. Wordy points out that freezing uh, occurs all at once. So this is a breakdown of the law. If freezing occurs all at once, then procedures don't hold true. But in fact, they do hold true because the antecedent is false. If something takes place in no time at all, then the antecedent doesn't hold and the conditional is still true. Big deal. So what's gained by this? The procedural account is actually closer to the text. We don't need to attribute to Aristotle a robust theory of Keteris paribus assumptions and measuring friction and resistance, impedance, and so forth. All that we need is that in the particular situation, the antecedent is given. And this is what makes it an abstract mathematical theory. What's not gained? We don't have ourselves in an important research program investigating minimal conditions for thresholds. However, we don't need the research program either to apply the procedures. So if we're thinking of this as an abstract mathematical theory, you don't need to, the empirical work doesn't have to be there because the, if this is an abstract mathematical theory. So the importance of being conditional remains an impo important to the applications of the dynamics in physics A, Dekaila 1 and 2 as well, but, uh, sorry, 1 and 4, but not to the breakdown of the conditional for reasons that become evident when we look at those applications. Actually, there's one case that, that Ed discusses uh, where you do apply the threshold. There might well lead, this might well lead to one to believe that the applications really are dependent on physics seven 
And so this is one step towards integrating Physics 7 into the overall project of physics, which met some people, as I said earlier, have doubted. So, how to apply the conditional? I'm just going to use one quick case. For there to be an application of the procedures, we need to have a base case where A moves B in delta over gamma, and a modification of two values according to the conditionals. So, I'm just going to look at one part of it. Uh, this is an argument that a finite power cannot move an infinite, and uh, so let there be a finite, an infinite A, a finite B, a time in which it causes motion with respect to something, or was moved gamma, and here the moved is conflated with the distance. And so here you have the conditional, the antecedent of the conditional, if A was heated or pushed by B, or was affected in some other respect, or was even moved in any way in time gamma. And then you get the consequent, let D be smaller than beta, and let the smaller move a smaller and an equal time, but let E have been altered by delta, and then you can proceed with your proof, and you can easily see that there are actually two principles involved here. One is that if A moves B in time gamma, then some part of A moves some part of B in time delta, and then in the next line uh, you're going to have, there we go, uh, a, if A moves B in delta over gamma, then A prime moves B prime in delta over gamma if there are in proportion A to A prime is as B to B prime. So you, you basically are getting this sort of conditional way of thinking, and this is standard in all of the arguments that Aristotle gives uh, against the infinite and for the uh, unmoved mover. So let me turn now to Aristotle's revision. So I'll start with case 5 again. Half of A moves half of B over gamma in delta, and uh, wait a minute, I have implies here uh, that half of A moves beta over half of gamma in delta, and this is what you actually find in Simplicius in two manuscripts and very badly defended by uh, Cornford. Uh, but in fact, uh, even Simplicius says there's a better reading of the manuscripts, which is this. Okay. <laughs> so, we have this case. Well, let's look at it. E moves, that is, half of A moves half of beta in delta over gamma, and so E moves beta in delta over one-half gamma. Okay. This is fine. We would have expected otherwise, but without Aristotle's argument to the contrary. So this is good. We would have expected this. And Aristotle is now warning you, this doesn't take place. So, for the failures to be meaningful, then we must have, I, I, I claim that we must have expected the inferences to go through. Otherwise, what's the big deal? If the inference, if we didn't expect the inferences, who cares? So there has to be something about expecting the inferences. So I'll assume that the inferences do go through in order to see what would happen if they went through. In other words, if this is mean, if this is meaningful, counter uh, failures of the laws, they have to be failures that you would expect, not that you wouldn't expect. Okay, so now let's look at case six. Messy text. So you start with A moves B in gamma over delta, where A is 2E and B is 2Z. First, failure. Half of A doesn't move B over gamma in delta. You should be looking at Ross's text right now. Um, which uh, is the first text on page one, the text that says Ross. The second is more messily stated up here, that half of A moves B 
or rather fails to move B, half the distance gamma in some part of the time and uh, with all sorts of other restrictions. So let's go to inefficiently caused motion in the text of Ross, which is the standard text that people use. If in fact A moves B in delta over as much as gamma, half of A, what E stands for, will not move B in the time for which D stands. So I'm going to assume gamma is fixed here. But then if that's the case, something's weird because who would have expected this? This doesn't fit any of the rules that we've had. Something has to happen to one of the other variables. So that can't be right. This is just, this is a little weird. Now, it might be the case that I've misread the text. So let's put in that nor and emphasize the word nor right there. And we'll say, okay, this is exactly what we, ex what we expect to be the case. What E stands for will not move B in the time for which D stands. But now what happened to gamma? So we have one case or two cases. Is this the nor? Does the nor go with the previous or is it one problem that he's, one variation or two variations that he's giving? So let's start with that. Well, if we start with two cases, the first looks Latin like a problem because gamma isn't there. So to find the distance traveled, you'd expect, you'd calculate, oh, it must be half gamma. There's no problem there. But now it's a problem text. I mean, it's, it's masking something. <clears throat> but then we have to look at the const the other, the, what comes after the nor. And now what comes after the nor is something really weird. Nor in any part of delta over some part of gamma proportional to the whole gamma as A is to E. Okay, that's what we have. And now we have a problem. Because since gamma is a part, gamma prime is a part of gamma, and E is one half of A, then since gamma prime is to gamma, part of gamma is to gamma, as A is to E, it follows that A is less than one half of A. <laughs> we wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> so this is nonsense. So that has to go. Ross's text has to go. Okay, next. So let's suppose that there's a, someone switched the, the terms around and it really should have been as E to A. So now we have this, uh, that um, the consequent is uh, half of A moves B in a part of delta over a part of gamma, or I should say over delta or a part of delta, in a part of gamma, and ga part of gamma is to gamma as A is to E. Well, one case or two cases, if it's one case, then we just expect we have a problem and we expect, you know, if gamma is prime is a half of gamma, then we expect delta prime to be equal to delta. So nor in any part nor in any part of delta then becomes superfluous or wrong. So something else is wrong with the text. Okay, uh, I'll skip the quick theorem, but the quick theorem states that if a part of uh, if a part of delta is less than delta, then a part of gamma is less than half of gamma. I'll, I can go back to this later if people want. But this illustrates what I mean by manipulating the proportion. So Simplicius has a reading where you have or proportional to the whole of gamma as E is to A. Well, if you uh, have gamma prime is greater than, if the part of gamma is greater than the half of gamma, then you expect the part of delta to be larger than delta. So now we have a different pro problem being hidden in the text. So something's being hidden in the text, some manipulations that are not part of 
the actual example that Aristotle is presenting, that, that is not part of the failure, but rather masks some sort of problem. And if in case two, if a gamma prime is equal to delta, then we have the half of gamma. So gamma prime is part of gamma is equal to half of gamma. Then you have the delta is um, the part of delta is delta prime is equal to delta, and that's the same thing as before. So it looks like we have several problems conflated together. Now the commentators do something completely different. They introduce a new variable, z. Now z is weird because z was previously ha uh, half of the weight, but now z is a part of the power. So you have a variable switching around its meaning. Now this does occur in Aristotle, but it looks like something else is hidden in their version of the text. And again with Simplicius, uh, you have the same problem we had before that a part of gamma to gamma is as the whole of A is to a part of A, which is nonsense. But at least in, in Alexander, according to Simplicius, the text there is a little weird too, but I won't go into that. Uh, you have Z is uh, less than alpha, uh, than, is less than A, and so you get something like what you expect, but you still have the problem that if Z to A equals a part of gamma to gamma, then you just have the situation where the part of delta is just an addition to the text that's superfluous. So you can amend, you could amend, imagine amending the text to something like this, you know, putting some part of A uh, at the beginning and what Z stands for. This is major surgery on the text, and, and I'm not going to argue for this. So anyway, my basic conclusion here is that this is just weirder. So something's very wrong. And so my hypothesis is that we have an earlier text modified by Aristotle, by whom I don't know, uh, but Archytas is always a good sort of possibility for this since he is supposed to have written a text on the mechanics. And I also think it goes well with the part of physics 7.2 where you have a reduction of locomotion of compelled locomotion to pushing and pulling. And so if you took these two texts and say these two texts are ripped off from some basic earlier text, you can see what an early 4th century text on mechanics might have looked like. It's of course always possible that Aristotle is being ironic and flamboyant. It's possible that he's responsible for the textual problems and didn't think it out. It's possible that the textual problems arose earlier in the first or second generation of editors of Aristotle in the first century BC or CE, but uh, it doesn't matter. Something is lurking behind. So let me come to my conclusion. The text, the conditional feature of the text is crucial to understanding it. The illustration is numerical, but non-metrical. The, meth the, uh, the text uses what I call restricted definitions taking variations pairwise to be filled out by theorems and not by a general law. The text is a modification of an earlier text. It's based merely on ordinary, is it, ba sorry, is it based merely on ordinary beliefs or abstract theory? At this point you couldn't possibly tell because obviously in some sense any theory of anything is going to have to be based somewhere in experience. But the point is, is that it's a very abstract theory so you can make your hypotheses as you want. Is it compatible with the rest of Aristotle's work? 
Part of Cartoon's argument against the mathematical reading of Aristotle, the nomological reading, was that it doesn't fit. Aristotle's talk, discourse on forces doesn't hang together. If this is right, that doesn't, even if Cartoon is right, it would not follow that this is not a mathematical work because it's embedded, because this fragment of it is clearly mathematical. So, I've used up my time, I've said what I have to say on a very weighty subject, and I've explained uh, what I have to explain, and I've expended my energy, and so I must come to a... <laughs> <laughs>